7.43. So, on to another issue that's gained a lot of controversy of late and a lot of people asking the presidential office to take action. Last week, we reported over 200,000 people had signed a Changwede petition aiming to introduce mandatory labelling of genetically modified organisms, or GMOs. So do you care to know whether your food is actually made from these? Dr. Bruce Chassis, Professor Emeritus of Food Safety and Nutritional Sciences at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, joins us first on the line. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to be here. And sometimes we get so caught up in the debate on the potential problems surrounding GMOs that we forget why anyone would want GMOs in the first place. So, so what are the perceived benefits? Well, you know, let me first say that putting GMOs into a category, you know, called GMOs, it, it makes it really hard to talk about what the benefits are because there are actually many different kinds of things since genetic engineering, which is what makes a GMO, is used as a way to breed different kinds of plants and animals. So, for example, you could have a virus-resistant papaya, or you could have a plant that's insect-resistant that doesn't require as much pesticide. So it's a whole bunch of things. In general, GMOs have been made for environmental and cost benefits, um, such as lowering the amount of pesticides that's used, and they cause a big reduction in pesticide use. They conserve water and soil resources in some cases, In other cases, they're disease-resistant or drought-resistant. Sometimes they just increase the yield because of allowing better management. Um, And in general, because farmers have to buy them, they have to lower costs or increase yield for farmers uh, because farmers' interest in buying a seed is to get the best performance. What about the claim of potential health implications, uh, whether we've had long enough studies to, to fully judge that? Yeah, so we've been studying it over 30 years, and sometimes I think the best way to answer this question is I've been doing food food safety studies all my life, but I'm also a consumer. I've got five grandchildren and three children, and I care about the safety of the food they eat. And I can tell you when I sit down to eat with them, I don't really have any concern about whether they're GM foods um, on the table or not. I worry about whether things have been cooked right and handled right and whether we're eating a healthy diet. Those are the things that really count. The fact is there's a big disconnect between consumers because of, I think, a lot of propaganda that's been aimed at them and what scientists believe about GM foods. Um, If I could make a a kind of an odd statement for scientists, I don't think there's any scientific reason to believe that any long-term effects could occur. And that's pretty definite for, for a scientist. And that's because GM foods are foods and they're equivalent to the non-GM version of the same food in terms of safety. Um, Like I said, what really matters is the food you put in your mouth. But we have done full life cycle studies. There have been dozens of studies of feeding animals GM foods their whole life with not seeing any adverse effects. And actually, we've, over the last 15 years, fed billions of animals all over the world GM food diets and we haven't seen any adverse effects. So from, from my point of view... The concept of talking about unknown long-term effects is really a pretty effective way for advocacy groups to scare consumers. I mean, we're all scared by uncertainty about, you know, what's going to happen 15 or 30 years from now. 
So, no, I, I, I don't have a lot of concerns about that. Yet people do maintain concerns, and especially they raise concerns around companies like Monsanto. And I've got to ask you, because anyone who looks into your background may find this information out and may wonder about your answer. So let's just get the full disclosure here. According to the New York Times, uh, they reported two and a half years ago or so that you were involved with lobbying the Environmental Protection Agency along with a GMO producer in Monsanto um, and that um, the University of Illinois Foundation received research donations from Monsanto, that you'd worked closely with Monsanto, running a pro-GMO website called Academics Review, funded by Monsanto. Can you just offer us a rebuttal to, A, the suggestion that you may have too much of a position in this fight to speak neutrally as a researcher, and B, whether a company like Monsanto is the ogre that it's portrayed to be? I'm, yeah, I'm happy to address that. Um, there, uh, where to start is, is always kind of difficult, because there are a number of different issues you brought up there. Um, I, I guess I should start by saying I've never worked for Monsanto. I've never consulted from them. I've never taken any money from them. And by the way, they don't finance academicsreview.org. We've never taken a penny from them. And we don't take um, money from companies. Uh, to, that's an independent academic site um, that basically uh, reviews science, both good and bad. Uh, we, in, we endorse some articles and say they're good, and, you know, if an article needs to be criticized, we do that. And that's the whole point of science. Scientists are supposed to be neutral in this discussion. And I think it's quite right to question whether somebody is neutral. I don't have a problem with that. But um, throughout my career, um, I have tried to maintain neutrality. I actually teach scientific ethics. Uh, our ethics are monitored. We have to disclose all outside activity every year to the university and to the state. And we try to avoid conflict of interest or appearance of conflict of interest. And you might guess where I'm going from having said this. There are a lot of things that are simply not true that are in that New York Times report. Mm. Um, not only are they not true, they are being sued um, over that article. Well, th- Firstly, I want to say thank you very much for offering your clarification. As I said, I'm asking because I feel like we have to clear those claims up for for everything else that you said about the positive benefits of GMOs to be taken seriously. And and with great respect, we thank you very much, Dr. Chassis, for taking the time for joining us today. All right, my pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Bruce Chassis, Professor Emeritus at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Does that convince you? And even if it does convince you, do we still need to be concerned because of the possible ecological consequences? Professor Claire Crayman is a conservation biologist from UC Berkeley. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. And I understand you've argued eradicating world hunger requires increasing access to food, not simply uh, production. Can you elaborate on that point and how it relates to the GMO debate? Yes, I'd be happy to. So I think many people don't realize that and today on the planet we already produce more than enough calories to feed every person on the planet, about 3,600 calories per person per day. 
But the problem is is that uh, a lot of that food doesn't get to where it needs to go. About a third is wasted outright, whether it's in the back of your fridge or in that supersized meal that you couldn't quite finish, or on the agricultural field itself, where often if the produce is slightly damaged, it might be left behind. Or in some uh, countries where the infrastructure is poor, it simply can't get it to market. So a third is wasted outright. Another third is fed to livestock, uh, which is, of course, produces food for us. But due to conversion and efficiency, about 90% of those calories are lost. So after these two losses, you're left with a much lower amount per capita, about 1,000 calories per capita. And so really, if we could reduce meat consumption and food waste, that would go a long way to eradicating world hunger, specifically if we could shift half of the crops for livestock uh, and biofuel production to direct food for humans, we would feed, we could feed another 2 billion people. Or if we could eliminate half of food waste, uh, we could feed another 840 million people. So for those reasons, I think that, uh, yeah, there are other ways to get at this world hunger issue um, besides uh, reducing, uh, besides the need to increase yield. Um, on the other hand, uh, how does this relate to GMOs? Well, um, it's complicated because the human population is, of course, growing. And so even if we do reduce food waste and meat consumption, we're still going to need more food in the future. I think I would... I would ask the question, are GMOs the best way to get there to increase yields, especially in a, cl- in a planet that is rapidly changing due to climate change? Um, and I would argue that GMOs may not be the best way to get there because uh, by, by their nature, they're really trying to grow a very uniform crop type. It, it is high-yielding, but only under very precise conditions with plenty of water, fertilizer, and lots of pesticide use, and that in itself, um, those conditions produce a lot of environmental problems that contribute to climate change through a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, A a very large use of fresh water, about 70% of fresh water is used um, in agriculture today, and excess nutrients that end up leaching off the fields and causing uh, big problems in our oceans, leading to oceanic dead zones and less food production there. So, um, one of my big concerns is that as the climate changes, GMOs, which are really kind of tuned to deal with uh, very specific conditions, and often, you know, a GMO may be, may be developed to deal with a specific pest problem, they may not be able to keep up their productivity um, because it takes time to develop a GMO that can respond to a specific pest issue or specific environmental conditions. So, so, so would I you say, Professor? Kramer, I mean, yeah. we, we heard from Dr. Shasi before. I know you're not looking specifically at the health implications, but he was saying that he's happy to feed his grandchildren GMOs, for example. Um, he also answered some of the criticisms about the influence of Monsanto on, on, on science research. Uh, there is, if you spend any time on social media, I'm sure you're aware, the claim that uh, these large companies wield too much influence over government policy. Would you say that at the very least, consumers need to be able to make an informed choice by having that label on the packet? Yeah, I absolutely do think so. I mean, I know I'd like to make be able to make that informed choice because I do think that there are better ways to do agriculture and um, you know ways that are healthier for our planet. Uh, and so, I want to know if I'm purchasing food that was produced uh, in that way, in a in a more healthy way or in a less healthy way. Well, thank you as well, Professor Kramen, for joining us today. Very useful to get your perspective. 
Thank you very much. Professor Claire Crayman, conservation biologist at UC Berkeley.